You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. This computer has a vast memory capacity. This is not a computer simulation. Most unusual. Are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Good. You've covered all the bases. Computer status report. From this time forward, you will service us. The priorities seem to have changed. There's no news. Like bad news. Would you mind identifying what you are? you to bite into it where we discuss the internet uh digital culture computing and all things good in that space uh tonight on the show uh it's the man who resigned from reddit after deleting the god hates lasagna and bill murray for nra president subreddits it's kate dim hello how are you <laughs> um i did not know that the man upstairs had a lasagna but there you go i think that's uh that's one to be deleted uh we're also joined by melbourne games writer and creator snow mcnally uh snow thanks for joining us in the studio tonight Happy to be here. Is this kind of what you imagine Triple R looks like, or um, how do you picture radio studios in your head? You know, I was expecting a big tower at the top with a big sort of flashy lights coming out of it. Yeah. Like lightning bolts, specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 50s kind of like radio vibe. Yeah, instead it's a cube, which is fine. Yeah, we can work with that. Cubes, yeah. cubes are relevant. We'll, we'll talk about cubes uh, a little bit later. Um, I'll also be uh, with you for, for almost all of the show. Uh, Warren Davies is my name. Um, how the objects in our built environment uh, respond to uh, how we are in the space and uh, our needs and uh, indeed how they talk to each other will be the difference between uh, a seamless experience of our environment and uh, I guess the spatial equivalent of a casino food court on a Friday night if we get it wrong. Um, one of the groups solving the challenges around the Internet of Things is Nodebot. 
Spots, um, an international uh, association bringing coders and creative thinkers together uh, to make stuff work better for us, um, all things being well. Uh, we'll be joined by Andrew Fisher, uh, organiser for NodeBots, uh, a little bit later on the show. Um, That's going to be a great interview, I think. Yeah, I've... I've, uh, I've, I've um, all my little lights are flashing, so um, that's a, usually a good sign uh, for the uh, for the interviews. Um, there was a fascinating piece of research that focused last week. Um, classrooms have been using Minecraft uh, to help students learn uh, across a number of subjects, which is where cubes come in. Um, research behind that will be the topic of our conversation with uh, QUT's Michael Dazani uh, later on in the show. Um, before we get to those pieces, though, there's uh, a couple of quick news items uh, we wanted to uh, have a quick chat about. Um, one of the interesting ones and curious ones that just keeps getting deeper, um, but hopefully we'll clear up soon, is Flash. There's been a bit of a problem there, Kate. Yeah, so um, a number of security organisations, uh, the latest being Trend Micro, have posted a bunch of uh, zero days, that is, uh, critical flaws inside uh, Adobe Flash's software, the plugins for basically most browsers, although it's rapidly dying at the moment. Basically, it's been exploited by a uh, security firm that provides uh, intrusion tools to governments and people like the police departments around the world. They're a group called Hacking Team, and they got hacked themselves and had a whole load of stuff released out onto the internet. And as part of that, a whole bunch of uh, flaws for Adobe Flash got released. Uh, And they're pretty serious. They've been plugged one by one. The latest one uh, is a... Basically, uh, the, the description of it is really vague, right? It could cause a crash and potentially allow an attacker to take control of the affected system. The problem with these things, of course, being that they've actually been discovered inside the materials that's been released by this hacking group. So this is beginning to cause a whole lot of problems. It's make, been making news since it sort of broke last week. And we're beginning to get things like uh, Facebook's new security chief calling for uh, Adobe to end-of-life flash altogether within the next 18 months or so. So there's, like, a lot of pressure now. Even post-Apple, flash is still exists. Um, it still exists. Apple's you know, famously stopped iOS from having Mac, uh, Adobe Flash on it. It's still called mm. Macromedia Flash because I used to use it back <laughs> sure. in, like, 96, right? Um, but, yeah, so Adobe still supports it. It's still used in a lot of places. Only a few uh, instances, I know YouTube up until very recently would default to it if you had it, and now they're not doing that anymore. The problem with this is it's just, like, it's just so obvious that it just needs to go away. Um, it's such a exploitable platform now um, and it just sort of doesn't really serve any purpose. I guess the main problem of course is that in doing so we actually lose a large part of the internet. For example, there's a lot of early games or early flash videos say on newgrounds.com and things like that really early cool internet culture that's going to be lost as a result of that Um, and that kind of bugs me a bit. Um, Any thoughts on that from anyone? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still kind of remember when building kind of little big, lush websites in Flash was was a really fun thing to do. Yeah, um, totally. And you know, a, a lot of um, a lot of Flash developers have had to sort of find different things to do and um, and sort of ways to to sort of um, keep their fingers involved. Yeah, it would be a shame to lose it. I think it's one of those things that you want to be able to go back to at any time you want and just kind of um, have a play with it. Um, especially for kind of uh, visual designers, it was a very it was a very dynamic and, and sort of useful platform um, in its day. So we don't want to lose that. I think, though, you know, Firefox is now blocking Flash altogether uh, in an update that they just pushed. It's such a shame, I think, and I've spoken a little bit about this on the show before, how things are so sort of interesting in the in 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 tech it's it just blows my mind for example that we're now at a point with this technology that's so broken and so uh i guess 
it's like a legacy platform that still exists, right? And as a result, it's getting less support, and there's all these bugs that have been found in it, and it's become like a liability to have it on the machine now to the point where literally everyone's just like, uninstall it, get it off your machine. And to me, even though I'm not really that um, fond of Flash itself, I just find that that whole idea of losing culture at the same time to be such a, a difficult thing to come to grips with. I agree. It uh, seems to be a bit of a, a week of uh, things being lost. Um, one thing that was lost uh, this week and, and over the past week was the PlayStation Network, which has had uh, a series of troubles um, uh, since launch. Um, over the past week, there's been four outages. Um, uh, as of about 2.15 today, it was back up and, and working okay, but people are still finding they're having a, a patchy experience with it. Um, one of the, I guess, frustrating things is the uh, Sony itself has been um, a little bit vague with its updates to the uh, status page. Um, you may have been experiencing issues related to launching games, applications, and or social features, such as trophies, messaging, etc., etc. Um, appreciate your patience while we address this. Um, so in the past, they have uh, hidden behind um, uh, uh, upgrades to the platform and so forth, <laughs> but um, it's it's almost a common theme. We've reported on a few of them here on Bite Into It, where um, things such as Creative Cloud have gone down, and um, the companies behind it, such as Adobe and Sony, have been really vague about what's actually happening. So it seems to be a few things. Um, firstly, information sharing about what's actually going on. So communication within the company about what's actually happened. You need to find out what's going on. And then just being transparent about um, what's actually happened with the public. Um, you, you kind of tend to feel with the, the pace of things right now that you can almost feel the gears grinding in their heads as they try and figure out how to explain what's actually happened when they just need to say, hey, look, um, something's stuffed up here in, in J section. Um, we're fixing this uh, as quickly as we can and we'll keep you updated. Yeah. It just seems like uh, Sony's got doesn't really have that great a track record of just being that any sort of transparency whatsoever. So I'm not sure why that is. You sort of wonder whether there's something that's like why that's the case culturally within them. Like it's not limited to that. They've had issues in the past with consoles, uh, things like that. But then, you know, at the same time, their competitors have been really similar in a lot of ways. So like Microsoft has had issues uh, in hardware, for example, for years where... Uh, the red ring of death that was not acknowledged for a long time and it was and then it was just sort of like that it just seems like that problem that you're describing there is like it's something it's a symptom of the uh, majority of that the video game industry um and i don't know it's just a really interesting thing because it just seems like when you have there's like a level of frustration around that and that like it becomes this unnaturally tense thing where you've got like no updates and the, the companies are fearful of putting updates out for whatever reason um, about what's going on so it fuels this sort of anger within or frustration within the community. It's just this weird sort of back and forth. I really wouldn't like to be working in PR for any of the game industry at the moment because it would be really difficult for this and a whole bunch of other reasons of course. It would be hard. Snow as a gamer, what's, what's your expectation in terms of communication when something starts to go wrong with a game? Look, I would love to know as soon as something breaks why it broke and when it's getting fixed, but there is this weird mentality at both Sony and Microsoft more than anywhere else. They feel like they're constantly at each other's throats and they Mm. can't admit that anything is wrong with them because they think everyone's just going to pack up and go over to the competitor, which, like, people have already invested, you know, half a grand in their console. It's not going to happen. But they seem to still be petrified. Maybe people in the future will be like, oh, there was that one time that PSN was down, so maybe I should get an Xbox instead because they're... I, I, I don't really know where the paranoia comes from, but 
it's very obvious that it's there. So, yeah. and you have you have loyalty to, to titles and specific games as exactly. well. Exactly. Quite, yeah. quite often they're not on the other console anyway, so you, you're going to stick with it. Um, it seems the sort of thing that they should invest in smart and kind of considered. Which uh, they, they have people. they have been doing to an extent, but they haven't shed the old sort of mentality of. Mm people buy us for our brand and our platform because that's not true but it was at one point hmm. so now people like people go where the games that they want to play are and where all their friends are so absolutely there is that weird reactionary side to it right like even uh at was it e3 i can't remember which one but where they released both or announced both of those consoles mm-hmm. and it was just like this backpedaling from both sides for you know, they released all these features, a whole bunch of people hated them, and so it was like, oh my god, we're going to lose ground. So it's just this backpedal over several months. Yeah, that whole, like, the PS4 was a PR disaster for Microsoft, purely because they timed it so well that every feature that they announced was counter to something that people didn't like about the Xbox One. And people, like, painted the whole thing as like, oh, Sony have, like, wiped the floor with Microsoft because they've managed to do all of the things that, that Microsoft have, like, done that people are unhappy even with as simple as game sharing sony put out one video that's got this is how you share games on a ps4 and it's one person handing another the disc because at one point that wasn't going to be possible on on the xbox Mm. and so there's this whole attitude of like oh yeah no sony just just destroyed microsoft but sales wise the xbox one is not very far behind and in some markets is still ahead so Mm. Speaking of uh, speaking of consoles, uh, there was sad news um, uh, in recent days that Nintendo president and CEO uh, Satoru Iwata uh, had died uh, at the young age of fifty five. Um, uh, Iwata was actually only the fifth president uh, of fourth. the company, uh, fourth president fourth of the company, president. and uh, one of the first ones outside the uh, Yamauchi uh, family. Um, so, w- w- what do you think about when you think about Iwata and, and what he's been able to do and achieve at Nintendo? I'm not going to lie; I did shed a few. T- when when the news broke, he's um, like as well as being an incredibly significant figure in Nintendo. Like he's basically responsible for giving us both the the DS and the Wii, which are like the the two products together are what turned Nintendo from a, a sort of struggling entertainment company that had franchises that people loved, but no way to make money off of them, to the company that had a console in every house and just. Raking it, they were printing money with the with both the DS and the Wii, and those were both basically the, like he he was the driving force behind those. Um, but he's also just always been um, an incredibly in tune. Like for the president of a company, he's always been in tune with the people making games and the people playing games. Um, so to have him pass is uh, is a huge loss, not just because of his abilities as a leader of the company, but also just because he was a fantastic man, and it's like that's so young, just such really culturally relevant person, um, yeah, in so many different ways, totally. And you can see that like in the outpouring of grief, it's mm-hmm. like this really touching, understated, but exactly like it's just a deep respect across the gaming community which is quite touching to see especially given how sort of turbulent it's been yeah and it's so rare like typically people in positions of significance in gaming companies are 
fairly strongly disliked. Divisive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Especially, like, you usually take the flack for all of the things that your brand does wrong and get none of the credit for the things it does right. And somehow he's managed to end up on the other side of that probably because of just... Like, if you've ever seen him talk, he's just this, like, so sweet, so... It's just... He's fantastic, and it's really sad that he's gone. It is indeed a shame. Uh, so, hopefully, uh, Nintendo will have some fortune come their way in the next few months, but um, there's a lot of love for the platform and for the games and, and uh, for the people uh, at Nintendo as well. Uh, one thing there is uh, also a lot of love for is um, play, uh, especially in Melbourne, where there's a, a great um, both commercial and uh, amateur scene of uh, people playing with technology. Uh, we're now joined in the studio by Andrew Fisher, who is uh, by day uh, an agency tech guy and uh, also by day uh, an organiser for uh, Nodebots AU, which uh, I'm sure keeps him busy. Um, Andrew, thanks for joining us tonight. No problems. Thanks for having me. Uh, so why is uh, why is play and why is kind of experimenting with um, uh, the devices around us important and and why is it becoming more important do you think um it's pretty important because we sit at this sort of time where there's a lot of change happening we've got a big sort of push towards sort of internets of things technologies but the hardware world has sort of existed in this very sort of closed sort of very anti-design sort of approach to the way that they do business and the way that they create user experiences and this has sort of just started to change a little bit over the last sort of couple of years, really, um, where you're starting to see this sort of hardware all of a sudden become web-enabled and you see these horrific user interfaces for things. If you've ever tried to configure a router or a printer, you can see that these are, these are often very terrible interfaces to pretty mundane sort of devices. And you think about how that's going to translate to billions and billions of devices that kind of sit on the internet and things that we're going to interact with. And, you know, you you can end up with quite a disaster in terms of user experience. So uh, one of the things that we do is to try and sort of say, look, there's all this technology and there's also all these people who, you know, have, have been training themselves in user interaction and user design for the last 25 years. And we've we've actually got really good at it. And being able to sort of tailor services to people and bring, you know, abstract internet services to people um, is what we as a web community do. So why not let us work with hardware as well? So NodeBots is uh, an idea um, behind bringing people, particularly people with um, uh, skills in JavaScript, to um, write code and to come up with uh, new ways of of using all these um, smart devices. Uh, How long has it been around for? What's the sort of backstory to to NodeBots? Uh, So it really came out of the Node community. So this is the sort of uh, server-side JavaScript uh, community that sort of started up uh, sort of five or six years ago. And about three years ago, uh, what became... Um, possible was being able to work directly uh, from the computer to uh, hardware over serial connections. And this really sort of changed the way that uh, Node could start to work. So all of a sudden, just about anything that you could plug in over a USB connection, now all of a sudden you can start to talk to it with JavaScript. And so... So, so things like microprocessors like yep, uh, Raspberry Pi and Arduinos right. and yep, so forth exactly. came out. Um, NinjaBlox has been a great one as well, and Perfect. we've spoken to those guys. Yep. Um, was, was that a, a, a big moment for, for people who kind of maybe don't have a lot of sort of programming background or sort of server-side experience? A- absolutely. And so, you know, you, it's a sort of a perfect storm, really, because the Arduino had sort of existed in the same sort of time period as well, and 
become very popular and very cheap as well. And so the ability to have this very cheap and kind of uh, popular microprocessor that also had a very great uh, community around it that also sort of tailored itself towards a little bit more design and user interaction kind of based, uh, you know, experience design. Uh, coupling that with this ability to work with JavaScript with this platform as well, it's kind of, you know, been very transformative in terms of the way that we start to play with hardware and start to use web technologies to do it. So have you noticed uh, a, a different type of person has been attending these events? There, I should mention there are sort of annual events that you organise and, and things in between, I guess. Yep. Um, the, the people coming to them, has that changed? Uh, a little bit. It's it's definitely becoming a, a wider base. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more uh, parents bringing uh, their kids along, uh, definitely. There's there's certainly an interest on that side. And starting to, to span outwards from the kind of core of the sort of front-end web developers really were the sort of starting uh, group and starting to work into more uh, user interaction designers and um, you know traditional visual designers as well starting to come along and wanting to play uh, as well and and you see that you know groups of friends will kind of come along and there'll be a designer a product person and a developer and they'll sort of hack away on something together and that's that's perfect because that's a product team just before we dive into it I, i'm sure there's a bunch of questions that we, we want to run through um there is a, an international day that's coming up it's on i think the 25th of july yeah. and there's going to be i think there's about 30 major centers already set up to to run events and australia and and melbourne and probably a few other cities are, are a part of that um how important is that to, to nodebots is that the kind of the focus of your year or is it just a, you know, another time to get together? Uh, it is another time to get together, but it's it's a big focus. We have uh, a big event that happens on uh, the, the last weekend in, ja- in July uh, every year, and this is really a time when uh, everyone is focused to to not only bring nodebots into their respective communities but also to kind of share the the work that they're doing as well so there's very much an interest in getting new people involved to 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 discover and play and kind of learn some new things Uh, but it's also generally a catalyst for a lot of work going on within the community as well and sort of galvanizes a lot of people to solve problems or to uh, to build new libraries and this sort of stuff and that all gets released in the kind of week or so after the big nodebots international event as well so it's very good for that sort of thing as well. What sort of projects, putting you on the spot a little bit, uh, come out of Nodebots? Uh, it varies a lot uh, depending on the length of time that people have got uh, yeah. available and the, the types of skills that they bring. But uh, there's generally a lot of uh, little sort of wheeled ro- rover sort of bots, I mm-hmm. guess you'd call them. Um, lots of people love playing uh, sumo bot, which is kind of, you know, sumo fighting with two two robots in a little ring. <laughs> uh, you know, it's always a crowd pleaser. Um, but there's, there's people doing all sorts of interesting things. We did a uh, hack day um with Zero uh, a couple of months ago and a team there decided that they really hated waiting for using their espresso machine in their office and so they hooked up some sensors and uh, bits and pieces to their internal uh, chat system that they used and uh, made it so that when people were, were at the coffee machine uh, it would post a message into their chat, chat window saying, uh, you know, the coffee machine's in use, and then it would post another message when it was free so that, uh, you know, they could time going to the coffee machine uh, the right way. Perfect. We, we had one at work where we've got a table tennis table and a bunch of different businesses that all use it, and it's really frustrating when you drag yourself out to it and you yeah. can't tell straight away that there's somebody on the table. Yeah. So we are talking about doing a switch with a little thing that runs to every office and you can actually yeah. see a light when the table's nice. occupied or not. Perfect. That's, that's exactly the sort of thing that you sort 
sort of see with uh, with no bots. I mean, we've seen we've seen all sorts of different things. A guy at uh, one of the the no bots events, he, he really only had just sort of started working in JavaScript, and he over the course of the day had built. Uh, a pulse oximeter, which is the sort of, you know, when you go to the hospital and you get a little light shone through your finger and mm-hmm. it detects your pulse rate. And he'd plugged away at this all day and he uh, he had it all working and actually getting his pulse uh, from light uh, put through to a little website that he, he produced as well. So it's really interesting to see these different approaches that everyone comes to it with a slightly different idea besides just the kind of robotic side, which is really the hook of what we bring people in on. But uh, people people come up with all sorts of ideas once they realise that, hey, JavaScript is a nice webby language and I can hook it up to a piece of hardware. All of a sudden I can do some interesting things. Snow, do you have uh, anything as you sit there at your desk at work going, I really need one of these little robots to, to help me do this particular task or job? Or how, how would you outsource some of your day-to-day stuff to robots, do you think? I would love a robot that just brings me coffee. When, <laughs> but I don't want to think about needing coffee. I want to just start to need coffee and then have something just deliver it to me. Plug into a smartwatch that's like checking your pulse rate yeah, if it yeah. drops too low then you like get a coffee center. exactly but it needs to go through the whole proper coffee procedure like i don't just want it to make me some instant coffee it's and not bring blend 43 we're not drinking that <laughs> exactly yeah you're yeah. on the same page totally yeah. excellent <laughs> there are yeah. some um some very interesting projects if you go to uh nodebots.io uh, slash projects um i'm particularly interested by the uh we nunchuck controller for uh, ar drone yeah. uh, node coptic uh, event can, can you tell us anything about that one yeah, this is uh, it's, it's been particularly popular in Europe, where there's uh, a need for nunchucks and <laughs> no, a fair bit of crime and theft, theft I, around I drones. I don't know, or? but um, okay. they they certainly have a lot of uh, uh, access to drones uh, in in Europe through a lot of the JavaScript uh, events that they do over there, and they've they've done some really interesting things with uh, layering JavaScript onto the uh, AR drones themselves, and then starting to hook that up back with the rest of the kind of NodeBots uh, type environment. So people using the the Wii Nunchuck, which has got a great accelerometer and gyroscope inside it to be able to detect orientation and things, and being able to use that to fly the drone just using javascript to kind of connect the pieces together uh as well as doing things like face recognition and all these sorts of things as well to be able to uh follow people around and do do sort of crazy things with i can't drones. tell whether that's like fascinating or creepy as hell <laughs> it's a bit of both isn't it oh my god uh, i think that's that's always the line that's that's what makes it exciting is that you look at it and you go oh this this shouldn't we shouldn't be allowed to do this but we are so yeah we we should let's do it first so that we do something not terrible yeah and i think this is one of the big things that motivates me with this is that we we trust a lot of hardware companies in particular to just build products for us and uh and then we as consumers just consume them but there's a lot of discussion around internet of things to do with putting sensors everywhere in our built environment or you know even our rural environment and there's no real discussion about what's the impact of these things what's the human impact of these things and so things like node bots and and related to um groups one of the one of the our kind of driving forces is to explore these technologies mm. and see them in different contexts and see you know does does having a drone that follows you around have some kind of you know emotional kind of you know, human <laughs> response that we need to kind of be concerned about uh and and let's have the conversation about this sort of stuff there was that great one where they were using uh, drones to track whale movements, um, yeah. which, which seemed a, a really smart idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, 
uh, in China, I think they were using some to uh, to track dolphins and things like this as well. So, you know, there's there's potentially some really great uses for these technologies, uh, but you know, we need we need to think these through and actually try some of these things out to discover whether they're good uses of technology or not. So, for the people uh, thinking about coming along or having their own event or setting up a community either for for this year or next year, what, what's uh, asked of them by Nodebots, or what what are they hoping to do on the day? Uh, on the day, it's it's pretty much a, a kind of classic hackathon type. Uh, event. Uh, we, we have a bunch of gear. People can buy kits and things like that as part of their tickets or just turn up and, and with their laptop and have some gear that the, uh, that the event has. And really it's about uh, you know, giving beginners a bit of an orientation to how everything to do with NodeBots works so that they can get going. And uh, for, for those that are a bit more advanced, we, we often have different other lessons and things going on as well from from people who are sort of domain experts in things like you know uh, you know route planning or wireless or these sorts of other things and really then we encourage people to get into teams um, in twos or threes or fours and come up with an idea that they want to pursue and then start building and, and, and providing them with lots of kit to, to fabricate with as well. Sounds awesome. Sounds like a really collaborative sort of experience. Um, fast, I'm trying not to be distracted by the website here. <laughs> I just noticed that the, the products list, is, or the projects list is really fascinating, but there's a missile command, a rubber band launcher that took down a, yes, a node AR drone. Down. So that thing you were yeah. talking about is like already yeah. like a thing, yeah. so arming yourself against yeah. the other team members. It's pretty <laughs> funny. Yeah, that was, uh, that was very uh, funny episode watching that happen. It's uh, yeah, tracking it and then shooting it down with rubber bands. So, um, if uh, if people are having a listen and want to get involved and want to do something, what's uh, w- what can they do? How can, how can they become part of this? Uh, the best place to start really is nodebots.io. Uh, that's really got a lot of links back into the various communities. Uh, in Australia, we have a version of that which is nodebotsau.io, uh, and there's there's a very active community uh, both here in Melbourne as well as Sydney and Brisbane. Uh, and we, we've got uh, Gitter and things like that that we use to kind of uh, chat and work, th- work through problems with people as well. So, you know, someone was normally on there pretty much at any point in the day or night as well. So there's plenty of avenues if you, if you follow the websites to, uh, to get involved. That's great. Um, we should point out that Swinburne have got behind the event this year and um, are providing the, I think, the event space. Is that right? They are, yeah. We, we're in... Um, Swinburne's new building, the um, Advanced Design and Manufacturing Centre, and they've they've graciously given us a very large space there to be able to play around in. So it's uh, it's a really good use of, of that space, and we're really excited about being there this year, definitely. That uh, sounds awesome. We'll uh, put the, um, uh, the link in the notes uh, up on the um, site's page and uh, up on the Facebook page as well. Um, Andrew, thanks for coming in. It sounds like an uh, awesome time, and um, I do I do wish my life was your life for the next few weeks at least leading up to this event. It sounds like a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R this week with Snow, Cade and Warren. Uh, one of the things that's always good to hear is that gaming is a good thing to do and we should be doing more of it. Um, a really juicy piece of research that came out last week um, told us that uh, teachers are using Minecraft in a variety of ways to help students, particularly uh, primary school students, to learn about a variety of subjects, uh, including uh, math, design, art and geography. Uh, joining us on Bite Into It by phone is uh, Associate Professor Michael Desuani from Queensland University of Technology, who's been looking at the research. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us tonight. 
Yeah, great to be here. So, um, always a relief to hear that we should be um, doing some gaming. Um, why, why Minecraft? Why is Minecraft a useful thing for um, teachers and students to be using? Yeah, look, we um, conducted a research project called Serious Play, which was looking at um, games in education, and uh, that took place in about 10 schools uh, in Queensland and Victoria. And one of the games that, you know, uh, came up as a focus of the research quite quickly was Minecraft because of its huge popularity with students, um, but also because it was quite obvious that, um, you know, it has a lot of educational potential and, in fact, you know, kids were telling us that they were learning learning a lot while they were playing the game and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, we kind of uh, took quite an interest in Minecraft and decided we should dig deeper to see uh, just what it was that kids were learning or what they could learn and, and, and how teachers might be able to uh, take advantage of Minecraft to engage their students. Is it really a matter of uh, any opportunity to uh, engage students in a, in a creative outlet is a great way to build a bridge to, to education? What's the kind of basic theory, do you think, behind why it's working? Uh, look, I, I, I mean, I think that um, that's true. Definitely, uh, you know, anything that... Um, it, is popular because it is um, involves a creative component is certainly going to be an important aspect um, in terms of how it might be applied to education. Look, I, I think that um, the thing about Minecraft is that it really rewards kids for gaining new knowledge in a whole host of different kinds of ways. So, you know, as you know, you can play Minecraft in so many different ways um, across different platforms, in different modes and so on. And, and so it's quite difficult for students to, uh, you know, kind of become bored with the game, I suppose, just when they think they've got a handle on it. There's, there's something new just around the corner. And, you know, one of the things we really noticed in our project is that um, students really kind of compete with each other to some extent um, about their Minecraft knowledge. So, you know, they, they sort of um, are quite proud of their Minecraft knowledge and want to share it with, with others, but also there's a little bit of one-upmanship that goes on there. And um, and so, you know, kids will dig deeper and deeper into the game uh, so that they kind of... Their, their Minecraft knowledge and expertise becomes more and more complex. Uh, so, you know, as you know, it's about playing the game, but it's also about, you know, looking up clips on YouTube and finding out new ways to do things and trying them out for yourself. Uh, maybe, you know, you start to uh, download some, you know, different kinds of skins to, um, you know, to, to use or, um, you know, different texture packs that you try out and so on. So you get into, you know, basic modding and hacking almost. And I think that's really appealing to lots of kids, but it, it also means that they're learning an awful lot as they're going along too. Are the uh, is the play really unstructured? So is it just like um, putting kids in the classroom in front of Minecraft, or do teachers come and try to build some sort of structure into that play as well? Um, what, that was one of the real challenges for us. So you know when we. Uh, kind of suggested to these teachers that they might like to try Minecraft. They It took them a little while to get their heads around the idea that kids would simply be learning stuff just from playing. Um, so their first uh, sort of approach was to try and put as much structure around it as possible. So our first kind of forays into this were where, uh, you know, a teacher would let the kids play the game for a little while and then they would stop them and maybe ask them to write a creative story about 
what they had been doing or you know they'd do it the other way around they'd get the kids to write a short story or something and then you know con- construct some of the the world of their story in minecraft um so they were starting out with things that they were familiar with i mean certainly there are lots of examples online that you can find where uh teachers are creating basic sort of maths problems um within minecraft worlds where kids have to work out you know uh volume and shape and you know uh calculation and that kind of thing to build impressive structures um but i think mostly when teachers start out that way they soon realize that the students themselves uh, are coming up with so many more uh rich and interesting ways to use the game that uh you know they quickly move on so um one of the teachers i'm thinking about did start with some of that basic design and, and mathematics stuff but then the students quickly said to the teacher uh we'd really love to be able to you know redesign our school in minecraft because that would be a really cool thing to do so they sort of broke out of that structure themselves to some extent and then the teacher was completely blown away by kind of what happened next which is where all these you know year 3 students 8 year olds uh, worked together to to reconstruct their school and you know then wanted to show that off to their parents and got really excited about their learning I want Minecraft when I was in high school or primary school it would have been great. I was just <laughs> thinking that. Was, kids have spoiled these days. We didn't have video games when I was in high school. It was devastated. Just, this yeah. sounds like the best thing ever. <laughs> so what, uh, what sort of outcomes do you see from that? Like what how do you measure those outcomes um from like a I guess a a, a semester of 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 Minecraft? That sounds amazing. Yeah, that's that that is one of the challenges we haven't quite got to the stage yet you know where we can have a like a minecraft uh result on a report card or something like that um look i think at this stage i mean it, we we are at the experimental stage at this point i'd have to say um my you know there there are a kind of handful of sort of early adopter teachers out there who are using minecraft in the classroom and and doing these great things with it um uh, mostly there where where they are reporting on it they they are aligning it to other aspects of curriculum so they might be getting their kids to do you know a bizarre or design uh piece and the students do a component of that within minecraft and then the teachers apply a fairly traditional sort of assessment uh you know uh, and uh criteria to that to to report on the design and bizarre skills rather than the ga- gameplay skills themselves but it would be wonderful if down the track somewhere we got to a point where we could recognize the kind of innovative and uh a- and interesting ways that kids are you know constructing new knowledge in these kinds of virtual environments then i think we can imagine a future where you know it might not be minecraft it might be some other sophisticated virtual environment uh where we really do have to seriously rethink what it means to be a learner and a constructor of knowledge and um and yeah, it's a real challenge for schools it makes a lot of sense michael uh especially thinking about our previous guest andrew who's working with um building things uh in sort of uh within the sort of internet of things as it's been coined that being able to play is going to be a skill that's going to um make you much stronger with the environment um as we go forward so if you're able to interact in smart ways and think about better ways to um i guess firstly have fun with the environment and then actually do something constructive with it is a, is a really valuable skill Yeah look I I think that's absolutely true and and look I I think it's actually there's no mistake about the fact that um 
Microsoft has purchased, you know, Mojang and and wants Minecraft as as an asset because, um, you know, I think there's obviously a commercial sort of decision that's being made there, but I think there's also enough now at Microsoft to realise that the next generation of of computer users is is going to expect a lot more from their digital and and virtual experiences, and um, and so you know the kind of thing you're describing there, I think, is. Um, you know, spot on in terms of of the future of the ways in which we will begin to to use technology in our lives. Has there been any discussion at uh, QUT or, or amongst the schools uh, involved in the study as to what they might try next or, or where to take this um, these learnings next? Uh, so, um, you know, unfortunately, we uh, we get funding to do these projects for a certain number of years, and then we then the funding stops, and that's what's happened with this project. Uh, so we have we have finished our, our current cycle of of research around the game. I'm very very keen uh, to uh, look at the use of Minecraft across formal and informal environments. There's some work that's going on at the moment in the United States uh, at the University of, of California where they are um, conducting what are essentially traditional uh, American summer holiday camps, but they're doing it in Minecraft. And the kids are, you know, logging on from home and uh, learning a whole host of, of different kinds of design uh, and, and creative skills in Minecraft during their summer holidays. Uh, and that's kind of been looked at as as a process of, of informal or, or semi-formal learning. Um, so I'm, I'm very keen to, to try something like that out. Uh, next, probably, um, to you know, because I think sometimes we do get uh, really kind of constricted or, or restricted by what the curriculum will allow, and I think sometimes those semi-formal environments are, are much more fruitful in terms of um, you know experimentation and innovation with with these kinds of tools. Are there so that's. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. So I guess in that vein, um, I wonder what other tools can you see uh, on the horizon? Maybe ones that aren't so much being used um, by schools yet. One of the issues I think with creative tools, in particular, is that it's very, like, it's very easy to make a difficult interface, and that's what part of the the genius of Minecraft is. Is anyone from a toddler to a a seventy seven year old can use and create really amazing things. Are there things like that that you guys are, are aware of, or you're searching for, or anything like that? Um, uh, look, I think that um, one of the things that people are starting to talk about in relation to, to school-based education is is things like wearable technologies. I think I think it's really in its infancy at the moment. But um, uh, when you when you talk to people um, who are looking at the, the future of education, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the uh, the Horizon reports that they they put out each year. Um, this year. Um, the the K to 12 Horizon report that comes out comes out from the New Media Consortium um, identified uh, wearable technologies as as one of the kind of technologies that would be on the horizon of um, for use in schools and um, look I think that there would be a whole host of ways that 
uh, you know, teachers could do interesting things with wearables um, around, you know, sports and physical education and that kind of thing, but also in terms of, you know, augmented reality and so on. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it'll be interesting, really interesting to see where that goes in the next sort of five to ten years. I think some of the wearable technology that we would have used at our school was those rubber band rocket launchers that we were talking about uh, <laughs> earlier on in the show. Um, we were right. making those, but without the benefit of uh, much technology. Um, yeah. Mike- Michael, it sounds fascinating. It, um, it is a shame that the project has come to an end and um, you, you will be looking around for something um, equally uh, awesome um, to, to bring to school students around Australia. Um, we will uh, post a link to the news item um, uh, on the show notes. Um, Michael, thank you, thank you very much for joining us and uh, what a great study. We, uh, we really welcome it. Yeah, my pleasure and uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R uh, this week with myself, Warren, also Cade and Snow. Um, Those were two really good interviews. They were really, really great. Like, I'm just, like, blown away by them. Uh, well, we always try and have someone special for you, Cade. <laughs> No, but seriously, like, I mean, how great, I mean, how great is that, right? Like, the idea of introducing kids to technology through that kind of concept and actually, you know, adopting and embracing the things that they're actually doing at the time is just crazy good. I mean, when I was a lot younger, it was all about modding, um, you know, first-person shooters and things like that, which is a total boy thing to do, right? But, like, taking that same concept of, like, experimentation with, like, 3D models and things like that and actually building something into the curriculum... That's wild. That's so amazing. Sorry, I'm just pumped for it. I think yeah, it's no, great. it's it's a, it's a really fortunate thing. Um, another thing that's fortunate is the uh, Kids Maker Intro Workshop. So um, if you are a, a maker or a budding maker or your kid's doing crazy things with, with Lego tonight and you're wondering what to do with it, uh, there is a workshop for that, uh, as there often is in uh, this wonderful town of Melbourne. Um, this one is on uh, this weekend, um, Saturday, at Donkey Wheelhouse. Um, Kids Maker Intro Workshop is all about the um, arts in some of the core um, uh, learning streams. Um, creativity is, is as important as literacy, uh, obviously. So um, children in the workshop um, uh, learn from doing it. It's a very social environment, um, uh, sort of very much play-focused, and it's working in the Little Bits platform, which is uh, a really interesting platform, um, introducing young people to making things. Uh, and and they're building really handy things as well. Yeah. Like it says here, toilet seat which self which self-closes when the lights get turned out, or a security system for hearing impaired people um, that flashes lights, or a motor-powered Lego robot which brings you a drink by a remote control. It's that thing that we were talking it's about perfect. just before. And a kid can make it. Oh, my God. This is great. Anyway, where is it? Hopefully, hopefully that one's at Donkey Wheelhouse on Saturday. Uh, it's on for a few hours, so you can get along um, down to that one. Um, there is also some uh, fun stuff happening at Collingwood Library uh, later this week on Friday, I think. Um, yeah. Cade, what's going on there? So the new Tea Talk and Technology at Collingwood Library, Friday the 17th of July from 11am till 12pm. Uh, it's basically, if you're over the age of 55, they've set up at the library a chat and a cup of tea that basically allows you to, I guess, talk about technology. And so it's like an easy way to approach technology for the first time if you're someone if you've been like listening and being like oh my god what's going on it's like a really great way of going down and actually learning about technology at your own pace things like that for all those long-time listeners first-time interneters yeah of all how many we probably have quite a few actually i would say um so yeah, get down there and um, have a look online uh, at Eventbrite. If you just look up uh, New Tea Talk and Technology at Collingwood Library, um, go down and have check it out. Um, 
it's like, that kind of stuff is really great too. This idea of actually just be, being in a place where it's like not a threat of technology. There's like that, that a group of people there who are patient and understand that you have no idea or that you're unsure of things or whatever, and it's not a problem. Well, it's not just that. It's being around other people with a similar Absolutely. level, and like if that's not something that you get in your day to day life, but want access to it like you want to talk to people on the same level as you with something that you might be interested in but the only access you get is immediately dropping you in the deep end then or making fun of you for not being at the same level as the other that's one. just yeah people yeah. do that i don't i don't get it i don't get it either i do i do occasionally wind my mum up about the fact that she thought you needed a different device for every email address that you had oh <laughs> so she didn't want a new email address because she'd have to buy a new computer um, that does sort of make sense in a way, though. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of like a phone line, isn't it? You totally. Know, new connection, new device. Or a real post box. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, speaking of strange things, um, one thing that did catch my eye um, uh, today was an app um, that's been devised by the ACLU um, uh, in uh, New Jersey. Um, police app that lets people police the police was the headline. Um, initially, I thought it was about the band, but I wasn't disappointed <laughs> to find it was oh. actually about um, the New Jersey police force. Um, the app called Police Tape is an Android phone app that allows people to securely and discreetly record and store their interactions with police as well as provide legal information about citizens' rights when interacting with law officers. I love the idea that um, you get busted for... Um, um, I was actually at uh, a station um, the other week where a person with very bad English, a uh, very small woman, was actually being um, arrested by six um, uh, Metro cops. Oh, and my God, yeah. Th- there was a few things going on. Firstly, obviously, it was a massive um, sort of overuse of force and, and intimidation, mm-hmm. but also um, the person was making it very hard for themselves as well, which I was a little annoyed to find out as I skipped my train to, to sort of try and help out. But what they could actually be doing in that situation is getting legal advice on almost like FAQs on what you should be doing in in that kind of situation. That seems a a good idea. Uh, There's so many things at the moment. It's just such a... um there's a level of technology that we can actually get a hold of and then, like, use that to enforce transparency, right? Like, this idea of so many instances where the only thing we can rely upon is, like, a CCTV piece of grainy footage that could go either way. Um, I mean, at the same time, a lot of this kind of doesn't work as well. I mean, especially in the States, you see this is, like, directly in response to a number of um, shootings of people of colour in the United States and sort of the the idea, if you like, that it's all sort of, oh, it's not black and white or whatever, it's all sort of grey and we don't really know what went on and all this kind of stuff. And this kind of thing is about, like, actually setting, I think, the tone of, like, how police interact with people on a day-to-day basis. And I actually have a great deal of respect for the American Civil Liberties Union because, like, this kind of stuff is is pretty great, sort of setting a benchmark of what a day-to-day interaction is for different groups of people of different socioeconomic statuses and things like that. And as far as I'm concerned... Um, it really doesn't matter unless you're actually a real danger to people or, uh, or yourself. Like, it really actually doesn't matter how people um, act with police. It's the police's job to be the, the utter... They're the ones that have been trained to deal with situations, not people who are caught in situations. And so... Yeah, it's just it's good to see that that looks like in New Jersey that they're going to have some kind of base level of figuring that out. Yeah, it seems like a really good first step into yeah, totally. like something that is solely solely needed. Especially, it seems like in America they have a real issue with this. We've seen it crop up far too many times in recent months and years. So, just taking any steps towards just making things better for people who are frequently targeted or just don't have access to the resources to understand what their options are in any given situation 
and putting some accountability on people who have a bad sort of reputation for abusing the power that they have. Yeah. Hopefully there's a, a kid out there listening right now who's got a good idea for um, some functional technology that will help us with that. Um, it has been an awesome night. Uh, thanks to uh, our guest Andrew and to Michael. Uh, we've been right into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening, uh, of course. You can find the podcast up uh, on our page on Triple uh, R's site. Um, we'll be sure to post all the juicy links and stuff up there. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.